Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. My name is Darren Leslie. This week I welcome back Bradley Bush to the podcast. Bradley was an early adopter of Becoming Educated with his first appearance on the podcast being episode number two. His second appearance on the podcast was episode number 64 alongside his business partner at Inner Drive, Edward Watson, where we discussed their latest book, The Science of Learning, 99 Studies That Every Teacher Needs to Know. They have also recently published The Parents' Guide to the Science of Learning and the studies that they need to know to help their child be successful. And this brings us on to the topic of today's podcast. On the Inner Drive website, they have written extensively on effective revision strategies and have an excellent blog post on how to revise effectively, which you can download as an ebook, and I would highly recommend you go and check that out. So on today's episode, I asked Bradley about revision. And I want to tap into his extensive knowledge because our students might be gearing up for mock exams on prelims and it could be the first exam that many of them have have done given the COVID pandemic. We begin by discussing ineffective methods to revision which include cramming, rereading and highlighting and we agree that not all revision strategies are equal so we look at some of the more effective ones and Bradley tells us you can hang your hat on retrieval practice and other strategies such as spacing and interleaving. We also discuss the benefits of a good study partner. We then explore um, different strategies that can be used in the classroom, ideas around growth mindset, dual coding and retrieval practice being part and partial of our curriculum. We then discuss what parents can do at home to support their children and identify how flashcards can be extremely powerful of allowing parents to be involved in their students' learning even though they don't know the content. Then we discuss some really interesting topics around listening to music. Can you listen to music? Or should you, should you avoid listening to music when you revise it? I know that I certainly used to put on music when I, when I revised at school, so is it beneficial for our students to do so? And then we also discuss the daunting topic of mobile phones, or as Bradley likes to call them for what they are, these computer devices that we use because they're very rarely used for phoning people these days. We then discuss about how much time students should spend studying because some students often tell us that they revise for four or five hours. Is that a good thing? And then we finish off by discussing the what students and parents can do in the lead up to an exam around sleeping habits, eating habits, and recognising that a little bit of stress is a good thing. So let's dive right in to listen to Bradley Bush and I discuss how to revise. Bradley, thank you so much for coming back on to Becoming Educated for what is your third appearance from being an early adopter. I think you're episode one, two 
of, of becoming educated. So an early adopter of the of the podcast, and obviously I had you with uh, your business part, partner Edward a couple of months back, and now you're back on again. So thank you so much. Oh well, thank you for having me back. It's nice to know I didn't say anything too inappropriate last time. That means I I get an invite to come back. No, certainly when the the work that you guys do through our drive is is absolute pure gold for us as as uh, teachers and teaching learning leads. So thank you so much for all that you do. Um, so since the last time we spoke, um, you've joined EduTwitter. So welcome to EduTwitter as a as an individual. What made you do that? Uh, I basically decided that I must have had too much free time and wasn't getting into enough random arguments with people about the purpose of teaching and how best to do it. And so Edgy Twitter seemed like the natural next step, I guess. Definitely. Well, it's certainly the best place if you want to get into some random <laughs> discussions and, and arguments with people. But, but um, no, uh, yeah, in all seriousness, um, we, we we're lucky enough that we get to work with a lot of schools and we know a lot of different educators. Um, and one thing I've generally found amazing is just how much people are willing to share online, like smart people who just give stuff away for free and discuss ideas. And I know sometimes it can be social media at the best of times is a funky landscape, but there's just pockets of people just doing brilliant stuff. And I think it's just brilliant for CPD for my own as well as, as anything else. Well, no, I certainly, Twitter is, uh, has shaped a lot of, of what I do because as you say, such of the amazing people and I've been fortunate enough to communicate with so many of them through this podcast and I hope that I, I keep getting the privilege to do that. Yeah. Um, so what else have you been up to since I last spoke to yourself and Edward? Uh, we've been busy. Um, the Our Parents' Guide to the Science of Learning has come out, um, which was mainly prompted because I think so many schools are getting quite good and deep knowledge of cognitive science and general research uh, in education and we're seeing that drip down to their work with the students um and now i think it's starting to be extended to the parent world and how do these schools best support and dare i say educate uh, parents on this sort of stuff um so that's been um really good and really busy um other news uh, we are very excited today in the drive to have the fabulous Kate Jones joining us uh, next month. Um, so we've been working a lot on CPD materials that we can develop, um, which we're really excited about. Um, we also have a book coming out with Kate uh, in the next month or two about student revision. Uh, I think that's the first time I've said that out loud to anyone outside our office. So there you go. That's my great exclusive uh, for, for the show down um really excited to be to be part of that oh brilliant thanks so much i'm very much going to look forward to to that but maybe i maybe i can have you on again with with Kate. <laughs> she, she'll be a bit jealous that you're on for a third time and, and and she isn't but i spoke with her um a while back in in reference that it was just after she announced that she was joining in her drive so really excited and, and i've booked on to her retrieval practice and curriculum design webinar oh, nice. so i'm really looking forward to to, to learning even more um, from kate and, and yourself so kind of online with what you just said there in terms of revision now about right about now is when a lot of students begin mock exams prelims we call them yeah. <laughs> up here in in scotland and a lot of them are coming to to teachers and asking a lot how do i how do i revise what what should i do so I want to tap into your knowledge on this because you've got a really wonderful um, blog and, and you've 
an, a downloadable ebook on how to revise that I'd really recommend listeners um, take a look at on the InnerDrive website. So I'd love to explore with you how students can, can revise effectively and, and make the massive learning gains that they need to make help them be successful. But firstly, we know that, that quite often students can use ineffective methods to revise. Can you share with us um, what those ineffective methods are and, and perhaps why they are ineffective? Yeah, uh, I think we see this time and time again with some of the students we work with. Uh, and generally speaking, for whatever you want to call it, ability or IQ, previous school achievement, doesn't seem to be a good predictor of students being actually know how to revise. This seems to be a thing that affects across the whole spectrum of students. Uh, if we look at why students choose bad learning and revision strategies first, I think it's quite interesting. So I think most people are familiar with, you know, the William quote of memory is the residue of thought. And I know some people have kind of translated that as you have to think hard about stuff or the, or the harder you think about stuff, the more likely you are to remember it. Mm. But if you take that to its natural conclusion of if you think hard about stuff, you're more likely to remember it. Who do you know who self-selects to do the hard thinking? Like who chooses to do the hard task? Uh, especially for something like school. And I was saying this to a head teacher the other day. As far as I'm aware, school is the only domain where, for the most part, as a, as a child, you're told to go to school. It's not like your choice. And yet I want you to have intrinsic motivation for this thing that you've been told you have to do. Uh, and that doesn't really happen in any other domain. In most other domains, we tend to have more of a choice by and large about how we spend our time. And so if it's not their choice and the stuff that makes them learn effectively is the hard thinking, like you can see why people tend to do stuff that they prefer and stuff they like, as opposed to the stuff that's difficult. Uh, and it's got to the stage, I think, where partly as a society, with the, the pendulum swings has swung so much that we've kind of allowed and confused this, what you prefer is kind of the same as what's best for you. Uh, and that's not the case when it comes to learning and revision because a lot of the stuff that students like to do, we know we can say fairly confidently, uh, is probably not the most effective ways of learning. So the classic ones being stuff like highlighting uh, and rereading, and they're not effective by and large, the basic principle is you can do them both on autopilot, right? You don't have to think too hard about them. You can skim read, you can brainlessly highlight. Uh, the problem for me with those two especially is they give the illusion of learning. So you get to go, look how many pages I've read today. And that's not the same as look how much as I've actually learned. Um, if you take that to, to the nth degree, it's kind of the reason why the learning styles myth gets won't ever go away because people know what they like and what they prefer and they assume therefore that's how they learn best um but that's not the same thing so like my running joke with this is with my toddler uh, he likes chocolate for breakfast he prefers chocolate buttons for breakfast but i know as the adult that's not what's best for him uh and something similar happens with learning is we know especially teenagers the way their brain develops, self-control, it hasn't fully formed as much yet. And so being able to not be distracted, being able to choose the hard task and not go down the easy route is something they struggle with and do need at first very clear guidance. And then also that structure and support to help them facilitate that. Certainly. And, and it's interesting you say about that kind of 
And I've never thought about it like that with school being a domain that you're told to go to, but we expect that intrinsic motivation from people. And it's interesting, um, especially that idea, that illusion of learning. Then a lot of our students, you know, I, I was talking to a, a senior people just today who told me yeah. they were, they, they came in looking exhausted and I asked them, what were they doing? I was up all night revising. Had you started revising before? No. So why do, is that the same idea? Why do we, why do we have students that, that try and cram all the revision into the, the day or night before an exam? Yeah, um, there's a couple of things I think at play. Um, one of my favorite thinking biases or like the quirkiest thinking bias is known as the planning fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and research has shown that people, the planning fallacy basically states that we're really rubbish at being able to predict how long a task will take to complete. And we always, we're more likely to think that we can do it quickly. Uh, so the planning fallacy suggests, when we sit with students, because they're not very good at predicting how long the task will take to complete, they think they've got more time to start it than they actually do. So they sometimes put, put things off. Um, so I think that's partly at play. Um, we know procrastination. I think the latest research is showing, I think about 50 to 75% of students would label themselves as a procrastinator. I know when we go into schools, it tends to be fairly unanimous uh, students saying that they are. Um, So I think there's this natural tendency, the further away a deadline is, the harder it is to start that task. And what I find really interesting is, without revealing our respective ages here, Darren, uh, if we say, let's say your exam is in a year's time, like a year in our lives for you and I, is a very different percentage of our lives than it is for a 15 year old. So for a 15 year old a year, literally does feel longer away than it would for you and I. Cause I know that like the seasons change quickly and like we'll be in the summer before you know it. Uh, but as a teenager, you kind of don't really appreciate that to the same extent. So you feel that you've got more time than you actually do. You certainly do. So that kind of long-term gratification is, is something that maybe teenagers aren't aren't quite good at. So we mentioned there a little bit of cramming, rereading, highlighting. So would you say that kind of things like rereading and highlighting that are the most common? I mean, quite often that I'll go into what senior students in, on, a, on a so-called study period and they're highlighting away and it makes them feel like they're doing something. Is Are, are they totally useless? Should we put them into room 101 or are they... I, I mean, it's like all these things. And like It's a right cop-out sort of answer it does depend how they're used um so reading like reading is one of the best things and one of the greatest gifts you can give to a student to like enjoy reading and it unlocks so much uh for me reading your notes if reading your notes is the beginning the middle and the end of your revision that's when it's problematic but if it's the beginning if it's a prompt and it's a starting point i think there's good value in that likewise there is some evidence that highlighting can be quite effective if it's used really really selectively uh and the reality is in practice it hardly ever is uh so it's not a case of highlighting by itself is necessarily the worst thing although it's probably not the best uh but the reality of how it's used means it, it tends to be largely ineffective Oh, certainly, thank you. And it kind of comes to my next question. So I think, having said that, not all revision strategies would be considered equal then. And some are more effective than others. So what strategies are most effective and what should we be teaching our students? Yeah, so I think the the one that you'd hang your hat on um, 
is unsurprising is retrieval practice. Uh, the and for anyone for the avoidance of doubt, retrieval practice being that sort of like generating an answer to a question. Um, I mean, it's just probably the most one of the most replicated findings in cognitive science. Um, it's been there's been studies from a range of ages, from primary school through to university, uh, across a range of subjects in exam uh, and laboratory controlled conditions versus in the real world. So, I mean, that's the one that you probably hang your hat on. But like anything, it can be done really badly. So I think part of the waters have been muddy by mainly in America. There's this term they use, they always call it the testing effect. Uh, and yet, if you go into a school in England or in Scotland and say, we need to test students more, uh, people uh, would automatically and probably quite rightly be quite reluctant around that and kind of tense up. So it's not testing, it's more quizzing. And even then, there's loads of different forms of retrieval practice. Uh, so it can be past papers, it can be multiple choice. One of the best things I think for parents, the best way to use this retrieval practice is through flashcards. Because one of the big barriers for parents is, I worry that I don't know enough about maths or chemistry to be able to help support my child do their maths or chemistry. But if retrieval practice is all about getting them to generate the answer to the question, you can be the prompt for asking the question. Uh, you know, they can even supply the answer on the other side of the flashcard. And it's not, you're not expected to teach them the content. Uh, you know, the quiz isn't there to assess that learning. The quiz accelerates that learning. And you can just help provide a prompt for them to do that kind of quizzing. Uh, so like even verbal Q&A and discussing why stuff is the way it is and how stuff links, that's retrieval. Um, and that can be done around the dinner table. And so it doesn't have to be this formal, I have to know a lot about physics to be able to support my child do physics. Mm -hmm. No, certainly that's a great way to think about the family. You know, I, I, I said to a parent recently, why don't you get them to create some flashcards and have to get five correct answers before they get their dinner. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny, you said, you said uh, before they get the dinner, I thought you were going to say something like, uh, before they get like the Wi-Fi code or something like that. That would be even better. Yeah. So we've covered, covered retrieval. What else um, can parents do to, to help and what else can teachers teach their students that has most effect? So, I mean, if we're talking about just memory and learning, uh, unsurprisingly, like spacing, doesn't surprise anyone uh, on a very basic level people forget things quickly like most people can't tell you what they had for lunch last Tuesday so like and yet I'm asking students sometimes to remember things over a course of a two-year period of study uh, and so the act of revisiting material is really important and you can understand partly why that doesn't happen so if you take if we go back to rereading as an example if I see something on the page and I'm reading it I recognize it, I'm probably familiar with it. I kind of assume that I remember it just because I've seen it. But yet if I ask me to recall it and really retrieve all the details without looking, people tend to struggle more. And so often we think we don't need to revisit material because I learned that last week or I learned it a month ago and I got 10 out of 10 when I, when I did that quiz on it last month. Uh, and so I think one of the things that some researchers are talking about now is, um, the actual impact of overconfidence uh, with this overfamiliarity kind of leads to that blind spot. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where I actually think a lot of marks are lost. It isn't lost in the stuff that they never knew and it surprises them, the question. I think a lot of marks are lost on stuff people think they do know and they did know once upon a time, but don't anymore. Um, so you can see how that kind of retrieval and that spacing link in 
Mm -hmm. because you have to revisit it and the quiz kind of accelerates that learning but it basically avoids that overconfidence of do you actually know or are you just guessing no certainly so parents and, and students at home say their exams are a month away and, and we're talking about spacing how would that look in in that month and and what can the, the parent parent and, and student yeah like there is no set formula for this stuff like the research isn't there yet to be able to say it needs to be revisited x amount of times over y period of days there are some studies that suggest some guidelines um but it's more about the principle i think as opposed to the details so we know one hour a day for seven days is better for long-term memory than seven hours in one day um and you can apply that principle however you like in terms of let's make sure we don't just have three days of mass three days of english three days of spanish you know we try and intersperse it a little bit um it can be broken down within the day so let's not just try and do five hours in one go and then do nothing in the afternoon maybe it's a case of spreading it out over the course of the day um so you can apply it on both like a macro or i guess quite a micro level um it depends it depends on how much the child knows it depends on how long they need to remember stuff for um but it's more the overarching guideline of when you're close to forgetting something it's really important to revisit it lovely principle and i think parents can maybe write that down for them so they know with their their, their uh, children at home they can oh we spoke about that at the dinner table two weeks ago let's bring that back up so they can yeah. plan and, and, and be involved um Something that, that comes up quite a lot and, and some students ask, I mean, sometimes revision can be an isolating, an, an isolated thing, but what, is, what does it research tell us about revising with a, with a study partner? Is that effective or is that ineffective? Uh, I'd probably call it a double-edged sword. Uh, we all know people who make us laugh, which is good at times, but also distract us and... I remember when I was at university, we used to go to the library just to see who else we could hang out with in the library as opposed to doing work in the library. Um, but there is some good evidence about the impact that other people ha can have. Um, so one area is referred to as the Kohler cola effect, um, not named after Coca-Cola, after a, a German researcher called Kohler. Um, and he basically found that if you put a struggling person in a group of strong and achieving people, um, the weaker person doesn't tend to drag the stronger one down. The strong one tends to drag the weak one up. So for example, the, the, like the classic study outside of education is actually in stuff like in a relay race or in mountaineering, uh, people on their individual leg when they're part of a team tend to go faster if their teammates are going faster uh, as opposed to how they do by themselves. So they get dragged up uh, by the others. Uh, evidence suggests that, you know, uh, partly what's known as emotional contagion, like we pick up the emotions and the motivation and the habits of others. Um, but it tends to work that it can help drag people up more than it drags people down. So having a good study partner, I think one study found that they put students next to each other and they couldn't even see what the other person was working on. So it doesn't even have to be the same piece of work. But if you have one of the students working really hard, it did act as a prompt to make the other student work harder themselves um so i think they can be really effective uh within the study partner there is some nice stuff you can do uh there's a there's a concept called the protege effect uh which is if one of the pair teaches some content to the other person not only does the person who receives the content who receives that lesson get a benefit but the person who actually does the teaching 
it ingrains it into their mind and their memory. They get quite a lot of the benefit because it helps them organize and clarify and be clear on what they need to talk about. The risk there, of course, is if the content isn't accurate, that's where misconceptions can can develop. So that's probably something good to do towards the end of that revision process. Once there's a base layer of knowledge that's already been secured, I'd probably suggest. Um, but yeah, uh, other people can can definitely can definitely help. No, certainly, and it links to you. You guys released a graphic around about seating plans, and I found that quite fascinating about where children sit. And but would that be the same as what you were mentioning there with the color effect? That partly, yeah. Um, so that, that that definitely plays a role. I mean, the seating plan stuff is interesting because I think the evidence shows that it looked at the effect that other people can have, but on a very basic level, the direction you're facing, like, is for the most part, people tend to focus on what they can see. <laughs> like that, 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 that shouldn't come too much as a surprise. And yet when you set tables up in a certain way, uh, in terms of groups, you're already providing different visual stimuli to the students. That's not what you want them to be looking at, uh, which is you probably on the board. So uh, yeah, that seating plan is another one that kind of divides opinion quite a lot. Um, and I guess it's just about how, how we apply and what you're after for from it more than anything no certainly thank you and that came across in the, the graphics so i'd encourage people to check that one out so we've kind of covered ineffective strategies in terms of of cramming uh, rereading highlighting yeah uh, we've discussed the strategies that perhaps have a stronger effect that as you mentioned you can hang your hat on on retrieval and we suggested maybe using flashcards and so on at home and, and spacing so can i want i would like to stay in the classroom and can i ask you what strategies can teachers employ in the classroom that can then translate into effective revision strategies for the students? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's interesting. So we often get asked to come in and do stuff like revision and study skills and that sort of stuff. And it's kind of the wrong language, I think, around it, because we're talking fundamentally about learning, whether you're learning for the exam or you're learning over the course of a two year period and like within the lesson. So a lot of the effective learning strategies that we'd want students to do when they revise you'd want something similar in the classroom because it's not revision isn't like magic beans like there's no quick answer that it comes as a surprise really um it's good fundamental like teaching and learning uh, it's just that when you revise you have to self-direct that teaching and learning um so i think yeah in the classroom stuff like retrieval practice and spacing obviously play a, play a significant part um I personally find from the memory side of things, uh, a lot of the research around cognitive load theory really interesting. Um, again, it sounds often to an outsider more complicated than it is. On a very basic level, it suggests that working memory is very small and fragile. Uh, Long-term memory is very large, probably so large that we don't even know its capacity. Uh, and we really want to facilitate that transfer from working memory to long-term memory. Um, and therefore, within teaching, there's a whole host of strategies we can do to not overload working memory uh, on a very basic level. Um, the stuff like the redundancy effect, which basically says if we throw if you throw too much information, you don't know what's going to stick. Uh, and the implications for that could be around how much instruction do we give them? What do our PowerPoint slides look like? Like I generally find it incredible that the most used teaching tool consistently is PowerPoint. 
And yet, how much of anyone's CPD has ever spent on what does good PowerPoint slide design actually look like? How many words should we have? How many competing images should we be using those animations? Uh, and there's studies on that have looked at the impact on all these animations on how much students learn. So the research is kind of out there. Uh, it's just now a case of really making it mainstream and, and applying it, I think. Michelle, that's such a fascinating one. I spoke with Oliver Caviglioli quite a while back. Really the- smart guy, right? Oh, incredible. And yeah. we, talk, we spoke about his book is fantastic. Mm. We're spoken about the principles of, of slide design. It's interesting because I, I asked the, the design and technology department to do a lot for me because they're the right. experts. They're the experts. They already yeah. know this kind of stuff. So perhaps I might tap into them to share nice. that, how, how to use slides. That's in, so in the in in the classroom, obviously we want teachers to use these strategies. And I love what you said there that kind of these strategies we're wanting the students to do are, are the, the effective learning strategies. So it's the, le- the strategies that we're going to be using in our classroom, like the, the retrieval and, and the dual coding and, and so on. Um, I've been quite interested in, in reading in that, um, how to revise a bit about growth mindset. Um, the growth mindset kind of went through a little bit of a craze and then died down a little bit. Can you share a little bit more around growth mindset and how that can help teachers support our students to, to kind of learn effectively? Yeah, so I think growth mindset is kind of the acid test almost of like applying research and education, it feels like, in the last 10 years in terms of how effective has it been. So at its core, I think it's fairly good to clarify what it actually is. So growth mindset is the belief that you can get better, improve your intelligence, your abilities are malleable and can develop and can grow. And somewhere in the rush to embrace that, that got morphed and misused, I think, a lot in education. It got turned into anyone can do anything if they try hard enough, which just blatantly isn't true. Like, it sounds nice to say, but it's just not true. Uh, And so therefore, a lot of the interventions were, I think it's fair to say, fairly superficial um, and veering on cheesy and slogans and posters. Um, And yet the principle, which I think everyone in education would agree with is, if you do learn from your mistakes, if you do work hard, if you're curious and courageous and can deal with failure and you keep trying, you can probably get a bit better. Like I think everyone would probably sign up to that. And so it's really interesting. So when you talk about revision, so you've got this retrieval and your spacing and your interleaving are kind of like your hard, very concrete techniques that you can apply. And sometimes mindset can feel a bit abstract. Like what is that? How do I actually help develop someone's mindset? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, when you start digging into research, there's a couple of things that show how it all interlinks for me. So if mindset is the belief that I can get better, if you use stuff like retrieval practice and you regularly revisit like spacing, you probably will get better. And so therefore that initial belief that I can get better, you've got then evidence of it. So it starts this kind of positive cycle of, I believe I can get better, so I do the stuff that helps me get better. I see I've got better. I believe I can get even more better. And so it kind of maintains. But the two things that I find quite interesting for me about how mindset links into all this stuff is I read a research paper fairly recently that shows students with a growth mindset are more likely to self-select and value effective learning strategies than those without a growth mindset, Uh, which probably is why that kind of positive cycle of having a growth mindset do those strategies. It's not just this faith and belief that I can get better. You've actually evidenced that you can by using these effective strategies. So I think that's quite interesting. So you can see how that might link them with retrieval practice. 
the other study that we recently looked at, I think we did a blog on this actually just the other week, was um, the first study, to my knowledge, of they found that those with a growth mindset, when they then came to do a task, actually reduced their cognitive load on the task. So essentially, by believing I can get better, mm-hmm. I didn't spend as much time and energy worrying what's going to happen if I fail, what's the outcome of this task going to be. I just focused on trying to do the task as well as I could. And by doing so, it reduced their cognitive load. And in this study, by reducing their cognitive load, led to an improvement in the exam results. Um, now, that's not to say you always want to reduce cognitive load. You kind of want this sweet spot of mm-hmm. it's challenging enough. We don't want to dumb down. But in this study, reducing it was found to, to increase the grades. And that's the first time I've known mindset and cognitive load being studied. And I think this is where we're kind of at with cognitive science in education in general is it's not about just doing this one off the shelf intervention or strategy. So it's not like we just do retrieval practice or we just do growth mindset. Uh, all of these things help shift the dial a little bit, but taken together can magnify each other's effect. Um, and that's where I think this stuff, that's the next step is we're now looking at what conditions do these different types of strategies work best in and what other complementary strategies can we layer to focus on mindset resilience and cognitive load and metacognition and all these things if they don't happen in isolation. Mm-hmm. No, certainly they all can uh, impact at once. And can I go back a little bit? You mentioned about can I, can I got this idea of a compounding effect, whereas if you use effective learning strategies and then you believe you can get better, so you still you choose to do that again and you get better and better and you believe you can learn more. Is that kind of what you... Yeah, um, and so like the kind of nearest term to that... Um, the phrase that often gets used is called the Matthew effect, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, in the Bible, the story goes that the Matthew effect spoke about how the rich get richer. Uh, this is how knowledge and memory, well, domain specific knowledge really works is the more, you know, the easier it is to learn new stuff. So take me who has no idea how you go about producing a podcast, like to learn one new bit of information, how a new bit of technology works. I'm going to probably have to wrestle with that for a while. Whereas you sit in the same lesson and you can see how that fits in and what anchor points that you can hook that onto from stuff you already know. And so that's this compounding effect of the more you know, the easier it is to, to learn new things. And given that we've just coming out of a, well, we're still in a pandemic and there's been a huge learning loss. A lot of people are focused on how do we help disadvantaged or struggling students catch up? Because the less they know, the harder it is going to be for them to learn new stuff. And that's why I think this stuff is should be absolutely a part of that conversation because this is the vehicle to help those students because of that compounding effect. No, certainly, thank you. A wonderful way to, to conclude that bit. So I'd like to move a little bit on to, to what parents can do at home and, and kind of pick up on some of the themes we spoke about when I had yourself and, and Edward discussing your, your pink book, um, <laughs> the 99 Studies of the Science of Learning. Um, what about the, what I want to explore here is, is kind of what parents can do in terms of the, the room, the area that students use. What, what, what does the research tell us around kind of where, the sh- where possible, what their, their space should look like and what, distra- or what distractions we can, we can have and not have? So this is usually the part where any student hates it when I say this sort of stuff, uh, because essentially all the stuff they like probably isn't helping them. Um, 
the first big one uh as a parent uh listening to music is a really interesting one because i think that's the one that most students do when they do as part of their revision uh and yet the research shows that students who revise listening to music that has lyrics there's a serious degradation in performance in terms of memory and learning to music that doesn't have lyrics uh, or ideally in silence um and we know this is true because we know music can help motivation I listen to it on the treadmill at the gym because I hate going to the gym. Uh, I know music can help my mood and creativity, like my favorite song makes me smile and puts me in a good mood. But when it comes to learning new and complex information, um, music that has lyrics hinders. And like, you'll know this is true. If you've ever been uh, in a car with someone, if you know where you're going, you can uh, have the radio on, you can be talking to them, no problem. The second you're lost and you need to think hard about what to do, what does everyone do is they turn the radio off, they tell the person next to them just to shut up for a minute uh, so that they can think about where to go. Because uh, we know if you need to think hard, generally speaking, music with lyrics gets in the way. Um, there are some caveats. There is some evidence to show the type of task or your type of personality may impact on those findings a bit. But by and large, it's a pretty safe bet. Um, how students listen to music is an interesting gateway because then you get to talk about mobile phones. Um, and we should acknowledge there is an absolute mobile phone crisis in terms of addiction. Uh, and we shouldn't mince our words about it. Uh, we also, like, I hope I could say this, like, we shouldn't call them mobile phones because they're not making phone calls with them for the most of the time. Like most of the time, these devices, we know they're used for gaming, social media, or porn. Uh, and if, if we call them for what they are, do you think it's a good idea? Like, do you think that device will probably help you do lots of learning and revision? And that's not to say they can't be used effectively. <laughs> like, of course they can. You have the uh, you have these great retrieval apps. You have the world of information. You can have study groups where you can support each other. But you just have to be honest and call a spade a spade here and be able to say, most of the time students aren't using them to aid their learning. Um, and Actually, we've had of a number of students who said they've asked their parents to take their phone away from them while they're doing their revision because they know it helps them, but they also know if it's there and if it's inside, they're going to really struggle to, to manage it. Mm. No, certainly um, the, the, the lure of mobile phones is, yeah. is even for me. <laughs> I've, actually, I've got mine right like, by my side here. Like I, I don't like being away from mine. And I'm an adult and I'm motivated to do mm -hmm. my work. And I know of the cost of being on it. And yet I'm still addicted. Um, so how do we expect a 16 year old who's not intrinsically motivated? He doesn't have that self-regulation. He doesn't know about the benefits or costs of it to make a really good decision. The other thing, if I can say about what I think parents can do, um, as well as there being a mobile phone crisis, I'm in no doubt that there's pretty much close to being a sleep crisis as well uh one of the studies that we mentioned in our book shows that parents often aren't very good predictors of knowing how much sleep their child actually gets uh parents tend to overestimate um and most students aren't getting anywhere near enough like when we go to schools we hear the average being six or seven hours a night with a good number of students saying they get five or less every night um which means they're basically losing out on about a thousand hours a year for what they probably need. Wow. And yet sleep has been shown to have a huge impact on learning, on memory, 
on ability to concentrate the next day on and even if we're not talking about grades here just on well-being and stress levels it's all linked to sleep um and i think yes i love it when parents want to talk to us about retrieval practice and spacing because that is what they should be doing in the revision but if they've only got four or five hours sleep a night the night before it doesn't matter for the most part like it's still going to be really difficult for them to thrive and for them to fulfill their potential uh one study that i thought was really interesting uh if, if i got time to just uh, say this one was they i think it was called the i think it was the eight hour sleep challenge uh, uh so they did this for university students so just to caveat the older you get probably the less sleep you need so teenagers would probably need more than eight so this was done at university age students uh and they basically said they'd get extra credit uh if they could you know they wear like these sleep monitors if they could prove they were getting eight hours sleep a night uh, they'd get um, extra credit on, on their results. And what they found is even once you factored out the extra credit, those students who were sleeping eight hours a night were getting higher marks anyway, uh, because sleep has such an important part in that memory um, and how we kind of make sense of what happened in the day. And I thought that was just a beautiful illustration because some students think it's a trade-off sometimes between revising or getting a good night's sleep so students that are perfectionists or have to feel failure they often stay up late revising mm. and it sounds good because we want students to revise they they think but it shouldn't ever be at the cost of sleep no certainly it's a, such an important point to to raise and, and interestingly the kind of what goes hand in hand with that is many students report that they didn't get much sleep and when you dig down what were you doing oh i was on my phone yeah. Uh, I once had a sleep researcher. She didn't have any like numbers and research on this, but she was saying anecdotally, she thinks that for every electrical item that's in a child's room, that isn't their light. Uh, you can minus one hour of sleep. So essentially a child who has a phone and a TV, she'd expect them to get two hours less sleep than a child who doesn't have a phone and a TV in their room. Um, and parents shouldn't be afraid of being able to say like, your phone doesn't stay in your room at night. Uh, and I'd rather have this argument with you now in November and December and get and get this out of the way almost than have this argument when you're really stressed in the build-up to your exams. No, certainly. So I'm going to come back to this build-up to the exams in a, in a little moment because I'm really interested about what parents and, and, and teachers can do to, to support the students and, and no doubt sleep and access to the mobile phone will be one of them because I, I'd agree that mobile phones are... Um, <laughs> they're the, one of the most frustrating things in my in my teaching life. Um, yeah. The the you ask a student to put a phone away and they put it so close to them, and it's like that, <laughs> that's not a way. Yeah. <laughs> it, it to, yeah. But um, we definitely have a crisis, and we spoke about that in our in our last podcast. So thanks so much for bringing that back up, and we'll come back to to that in a, sure. in a few moments. So. Kind of the next one, we briefly mentioned it when we spoke about spacing and you gave a, a, a wee example that it's better to study for one hour over seven days than it is to do seven days in one hour. Or seven yeah. days, seven hours in one day. Seven yeah, days. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but many parents and, and students do ask about how much time should a student spend studying per evening and, and what should we take into, what should we take into consideration when discussing this with, with parents and students? Yeah, so like the spacing thing. Uh, so that principle earlier, I said, you know, if you think hard about stuff, you're more likely to remember it. The good principle, I think, to remember for spacing is anything you gain quickly, you probably lose quickly. 
Uh, and this is true in all walks of life. So if you ever do like a crash diet, if you lose weight quickly, what do most people do when they make target weight is they then gain that weight back again. Uh, same is true for fitness. If you try and cram fitness in, like it probably doesn't last very long. Uh, knowledge is the same. So if you gain knowledge quickly, you lose knowledge quickly. And so actually what you want is this gradual buildup because that way you kind of have a longer tail in terms of how long you're likely to remember that the decay of that memory trace is, isn't at as such a faster rate. Um, I don't know is the honest answer how long people should spend revising. I did read some research around homework uh, that found about 90, minute, 90 to 100 minutes a day seemed to be a nice sweet spot of you get a good benefit. Um, once you get over 100 minutes, you might still get a, a bit more of an additional benefit, but it might not be the most efficient use of time. Like the benefit gained after that hour and a half often doesn't justify all that extra work in terms of it comes at a cost of other stuff often. Um, I've heard some teachers in England when students do their A-levels, so if they do three or four subjects, talk about an, an average of an hour a day per subject outside of lesson time, but that might include free periods within the school day. Um, I would love there to be a neat answer. I would love to find a research paper. That means I can come on here and go, it's 17.3 hours a week, and then we can all just set our watches uh, to that. Um, I don't think that number exists. Uh, the best way I think of thinking about it is, isn't in terms of time, but it's in terms of levels of understanding. So there should be certain things that I think students should be able to do that mean that they have deep knowledge about the thing that they're revising. So they should be able to do some quizzes on it. You should be able to teach a concept to someone. You should be able to what psychologists call transfer, which is being able to apply the same context, the same thought process to a different context. So I don't just want you to know how to solve one equation. I want you to be able to solve that equation applied to different questions. Uh, so I think if you could do that transfer, if you can teach it to someone else, if you can explain it, um, that's probably an indication that you've learned it well, more so than just by number of time spent on it. So then, so I'm sorry, it probably isn't the, the neatest no, of all. Of course, of course yeah. and, and what we don't know, we, we don't know, we need to be honest yeah. about that. Um, so I suppose then the students can spend a bit of time and, and when they're able to self-regulate and understand that I think I've got this, then they can they can kind of put the pen down and, and go and do other things. And I think I think we'll come on to that in just a minute. But definitely would you suggest then that students shouldn't be spending five, six hours an evening revising? Yeah, I like it's kind of it's like you know you get some people and they say they spend like four hours in the gym and you kind of go like what were you possibly doing like that's madness uh and i think something similar happens i think the danger with students in high performing uh schools is this peer pressure to kind of keep up with each other and do one better where there's a culture that working hard is valued is there's kind of this one-upmanship that everyone then goes oh god i was up until 2 a.m last night working and that then becomes the norm and the benchmark um so i do worry for some students on that um i think if you're doing well in really well in school and you're getting good marks and you're working hard at home like there's a good indication that you don't need to kind of be an absolute slave to this like it's really healthy to have outside 
interest as well. Now, some students feel there's a trade-off. We've had some students say to us, there's kind of like, if you imagine a triangle, uh, you have doing well at school, social life and sleep uh, as the three ends of the triangle. And they say they feel that they can only choose two. Um, and that's the reality that they're, that, they're, that they're in. And for them, that's a very real feeling. Um, and we do have to think about how we do best support those students. The nice thing with stuff like spacing and retrieval is you get more bang for your buck. So you get more oomph from those hours spent doing that than you would from doing more hours on other things. So it's actually a really time efficient way to learn because you're using that time effectively. Um, so it really is more about, I think, quality than just quantity. Certainly. I certainly think we should advise that they're more about quality because it is an interesting one. You talk about the, that triangle of school, sleep and, and social life. Many students and you throw into the mix a part-time job. Then... Yeah, absolutely. And then extracurricular activities. Uh, and then it becomes it becomes really tough. Like we shouldn't ever forget, I think, as adults, it's a tough gig being a student uh, these days, more so in the last two years, probably than than in a long time. But like, it's it's a tough time in these high stakes exams. For what it's worth, I think exams are a really good way, probably the fairest way of being able to assess across like large samples. But they do become quite time uh, all consuming for some students. It's, it's, it's a really difficult period of time. Well, it certainly is, and it's definitely something that's worth recognising. I mean, it is getting harder for, for students, especially if we add in the, the lack of sleep and mobile phones and social media. I think most right. pastoral teams in schools can will recognise this, that they spend a lot of time dealing yeah. with the aftermath of what happens on, on, on social media, so certainly. So what I want to move on to next, let's, let's imagine then that the exam is, is two weeks away or a week away, um, and that brings with it a lot of pressure, as, as we know. But what can parents and students do in the days leading up to and the night before an exam to almost, dare I say, it, make it not, a, not as horrible an experience as it, as it sometimes can be? So I think it's good to acknowledge a bit of stress and a little bit of nerves isn't a bad thing. Like, it means that you're doing something important. It's a part of life. Uh, we shouldn't ever try and shield students mm -hmm. completely away from this because I do worry in part of some of the language that gets used now. So there are a definite percentage of students who do have anxiety and depression, and we have to be really mindful of those students. But on the same basis, I do sometimes see that language being used very casually to students who that doesn't apply for. So instead of being nervous, they'll talk like we talk about them being anxious. Instead of being sad, they talk about it being depressed and like you should be a bit nervous the night before an exam because it does matter, but that's okay. Um, so I think acknowledging how people are feeling and normalizing it to an extent, um, I think is quite a healthy starting point. Um, I think there's nothing different that people should really do the night before that much. Like if you're trying to change routine within that week or that night before, you're probably firefighting at that stage. And that's why I think getting this stuff nailed early is really important. Uh, again, it comes down to this why we just talk about learning as opposed to it just being re revision because it's nothing something so unique. Uh, one of the things that we use, uh, before I did a lot of stuff in schools, I used to work as a sports psychologist. And for these big events like the Olympics, uh, when everyone used to get, all our athletes used to get really nervous when they compete at them, we used to say, uh, 
these events aren't different, they're just bigger. Like they're essentially the same event, it's the same rules of the game, it's just the consequences are bigger. Uh, so it doesn't make sense then to focus on those consequences. It makes sense to focus on what's the same to give that sense of control and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this similar is true for exams. It's like, yes, we acknowledge these are important events, but on the same basis, like what usually gets you in a good mood? What usually helps you relax the hour before bedtime? Uh, let's look to replicate those sort of things. Uh, that's why I think consistency of bedtime matters. Um, stuff like, it sounds kind of like a throwaway thing, but it's important. That week, making sure your child's eating properly, uh, especially breakfast, I, I think is so important. Um, there's a lot of really nice research uh, around fresh air. Uh, I think during revision time, students should A, get fresh air every day. Like they should have, I'd say sunlight, but given where we live, like that might not always happen, but they should get fresh air every day. And they should probably also get a mild sweat on. So that doesn't have to be a full on gym team sport thing but some way to get the heart beating in a healthy way uh, we know these things are really good for well-being and for learning uh, and for managing stress as well so certainly so i love that message that we can give to, to parents about that regular bedtime with the phone in another room yeah um, Eat that healthy eating habits, the breakfast. It is amazing the students that often come in and they tell you they haven't had breakfast and then the lethargy and the lethargic kind of, kind of actually to show later in the day. But I like that one about getting fresh air and, and getting a bit of a mild sweat on as a, as a physical education teacher, I wholeheartedly back that. <laughs> and of course, that that good night's sleep. Even the night before the exam, some students struggle to sleep, but getting a good night's sleep really is important because they're then fresher for the for the exam and yeah and let, let, let's say let's be really obvious about some students will struggle to sleep the night before and i wouldn't want to over egg it that go if you don't get a good night's sleep you can't do well like people can do really well of a bad night's sleep if they've got that real deep knowledge going mm -hmm. into it and that's why if you've had regular good night's sleep for most of that week it's probably not going to be the end of the world. It becomes really problematic if this has just become the norm of staying up late because then that just gets magnified and compounded in the build-up to the exam. Certainly. So it's all about that that habit. So if we're discussing yeah. this now in, in November, December, and the, the final exams aren't until till May, there's plenty of time to really get that habit of, of sleep and, and eating and, and exercising yeah. better in now. And it's really interesting, like, it's really boring, the answers. And, like, it derives a load of repetition, which doesn't sound glamorous. Uh, but, like, we don't need to go searching for, like, these magic beans. Like, we know what the good common sense advice is. It's just a case of having the self-discipline as parents to help reinforce it and do it regularly. Um, so then it doesn't come as a shock to the system when we then go, no, I'm taking your phone away. No, you've got to go to bed at 10 o'clock tonight. Like... That's just what you do in those in, the, in your household. No, certainly. And I think it was Aristotle that said about ex we are what we repeatedly do in excellence is a habit. So even back then, they recognised yeah. that this kind of... Uh, and then if you're my favourite uh, contemporary version of the Aristotle one, uh, I was once told Elle McPherson uh, was asked um, what's her workout regime in terms of helping keep like a good figure uh, and why she hadn't done like a video or anything like all other celebs do. And she's like... 
oh, it's really boring. I, I just walk everywhere uh, for the most part. And it, but it's just every day. It's just this kind of boring habit routine. Uh, there's nothing special or glamorous, but it's just that self-discipline every day. Certainly, and it's same with the the learning strategies in terms of retrieval and, and yep. spacing. It, it's we keep finding wanting to find the the silver bullet in education, but things that are good can often be boring, but they're necessary for for effective learning. So a couple. Oh, sorry. Go, no, go on. Sorry. No, you go ahead. Well, it just drives me slightly mad if I'm honest about this sort of silver bullet that everyone looks for because you can't win in terms of education research because if it's new, everyone says it's a fad and it hasn't been replicated yet. And if it's old, they, people go, yeah, we've always known that. And like, what else have you got in the locker? And it's kind of, there's no middle ground uh, in a sense. It's either it's always been done or it's this newfangled far crazy idea uh, that hasn't been tested yet. Um, and I do think the, the discourse around research and especially cognitive science is improving, but it needs to kind of get away from this quick answer or one of the things I hate is the kind of concept of like this debunking uh, for the most part, or like how one study then proves that everything we thought beforehand isn't the case. It's a case of like these things add to our understanding and there are no silver bullets. And when stuff disagrees with previous findings, we should embrace that because it improves our understanding. It doesn't mean those silver bullets aren't silver bullets anymore. It just means that we just know more about how to apply them. Uh, and that's hopefully where we're getting to, I think, with applying research in, in schools. Certainly deepening our understanding yeah. so we can apply them better. And it's interesting when often I talk about um, retrieval, interleaving and, and spacing and, and so on. And people say, well, I already do that. But it's like, well, when you understand it better, you can do it more meaningfully. You can plan for it more. You can build it into your, to your curriculum sequences and so on. So we've spoken a lot about retrieval practice. I know that... Um, Kate Jones, who will be joining you soon, has, has a lot. Um, would you recommend her work for, if there's a parent listening, I'd like to know a little bit more of that. Is there anything else you'd recommend for? I want to find out strategies. I, I recognise that retrieval practice is really good. Where can I go to find out more? Yeah, uh, one of the things I think that Kate does brilliantly is there's not many people, I think, who really have a good understanding of both the research and then how it actually applies in the classroom. And I think given her teaching experience, that's a really lovely kind of combination. Uh, and a lot of her work and her books are very much, what does this actually look like in a like practical and meaningful way? Um, so I think her books are fantastic. Um, we, with our, with our parenting guide to the science of learning, we'd kind of steered less away from the application and more around an understanding of the general concepts to kind of give that uh, autonomy. Um, for any parents listening, we do have a ton of resources on our website uh, that are completely free to download that hopefully put some of this research in, a, in, in an accessible way. Um, so that's at innerdrive.co.uk. Um, and that's all completely free to, to download for parents and, and for teachers. Certainly, and, and can I lean on that? So obviously I'd encourage teachers, parents, and students. Students are, can access the, the resources yeah. on the websites as well. And you have so many infographics on various things that can benefit students, parents, and, and teachers alike. So 
place head to inner drive is there a can you can you reference specifically where teach what teachers can research yeah so the, 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 there should be a uh, there's a tab that I think that says our resources um and all our blogs and graphics are, are available on our resources um we've spent quite a lot of time on teacher and parent resources and that's why we're generally quite excited about the next book which we think is going to be one of i think there's some others but it's the first that really looks at how do students apply this sort of cognitive science research to their studies um and one of the things that we were quite determined when we kind of come out with this was it has to be done in a really accessible way both in terms of the students wanting to read it but also if schools are gonna be the one to buy it for their students making it as cheap as possible because i think off the back of this pandemic as i mentioned earlier it's the disadvantage and struggling students who arguably can get the most benefit from it and so it just if there was ever a time for this to get in their hands, it's hopefully it's now. No, it certainly is. And, and thank you so much for revealing that earlier on in the podcast. Could you are you able to share when that book will be available? Uh yes, yeah, so uh so the book's called uh, A Student Stu- a Study Guide, uh Secrets uh to Being Revision Ready. Um we're we're publishing it with John Cat. Um hopefully it'll be out in February, um, with our plan of being able to make an impact for these upcoming exams definitely you'll certainly have one purchaser of that <laughs> right here so thank you so much i'm very much looking forward to that come to the end of the interview section uh Bradley. so now that you've got a twitter handle I- i'd love it if you would be willing to share that with um the listeners and of course point share them with the yeah. inner drive twitter handle I mean, as well. yeah so in the drive is probably the easier one to do that's inner underscore drive uh about once every two or three days whenever we find a research paper uh, we tend to summarise on there. Is it? It's bad that I actually don't know my own Twitter handle yet because I literally joined last. Week. I'm literally looking it up now. Uh, it's Bradley K Bush, Bush spelled B-U-S-C-H. Um, so yeah, that's my personal one. Um, but if you probably want slightly more informed opinions on things, the inner drive handle is probably the, uh, the the best place for that. Brilliant. Thank you. I'd highly recommend that as I've done before. It really is a, a wonderful resource and, and teachers and and so on. I'd recommend you signed up to the mailing list because you. you get regular inbox CPD. So thank you so much. Now on my quick fire round, I've, I've changed my last question to suit um, <laughs> your current role. Um, so if you're ready for them, I, I'd like to go ahead and ask them. Sure. Um, can I ask that, um, Bradley, what are you reading currently? Uh, I've literally, well, almost finished. I'm actually reading, not to talk about her too much, uh, Kate's latest book that she's done with Robin McPherson called The Teaching Life, mm-hmm. um, which I think has literally just come out. Um, it's as expected between those two authors. Um, it's brilliant. Uh, and I'd strongly recommend recommend that. Brilliant. Thank you. It really is. Really is I was privileged to get an early sneak peek of oh, that, hey, as well. that one, and it, it really, it really is good. I'm hoping to chat with Robin and Kate about that very soon if I can pin them down to a date. Um, my next question then is: What is your current professional development focus? Um, I so I previously I've done a lot of stuff with both students and teachers. So I'm focusing a bit more on teachers uh, at the moment. Um, I'm trying my best. I spend a lot of time trying to work out how cognitive science best applies um, in the classroom. I'm actually personally now spending quite a bit of time. I'm now quite interested in the researchers that look at when it doesn't work uh, and what can we kind of learn about what conditions do things work best in. 
Um, I'm currently finding the, there seems to be a bit of a false narrative that cognitive science is only for some subjects and is mainly for secondary schools. Uh, and yet we've worked with a number of primary schools, as many who are doing a sort of knowledge rich curriculum and therefore weaving in spacing and revisiting into that. Um, so I'm quite in, finding quite interesting to look at the younger years um, and how that works. Uh, and I'm currently reading some research around the role that play, and partly because my kid's about to start school, so that's one funny point is how much role does play have in our learning, and does that contrast with what we think about retrieval practice, which is the school sort of quizzing, or actually can the two go hand in hand? Um, so that's what I'm trying to get my head around at the moment. That's really, really fascinating, especially in the Scottish context, because play-based learning is very much in vogue in, in Scotland. Um, yeah. So I'd be interested to to read more about that myself. So thank you so much. And um, my last question: uh, What do you love most about what you do? Uh, I generally think we're, we're so I'm, I think I'm in quite a fortunate position of because we were at such a range of schools, be it different ages, different types of schools. Like last week, I was at a very prestigious high fee paying school doing some CPD. Uh, two days later, I was at a coastal town, uh, which is in quite a poor area. Um, and yet they're often wrestling with similar concepts, but in different applications of what does retrieval practice look like for these different year groups? What does, how do we space both within a lesson or across a curriculum? And so I think we're, it's quite, it's generally nice to be able to come to contact with so many different types of educators so you can get quite a nice broad overview of the landscapes of education across the country um, and even when we come up to Scotland when we do some work with schools in Wales it's really easy and lazy on my behalf to assume that everyone must be in a similar sort of context and yet it's funny how much range you get within the UK uh, on what 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 is education and how do we best educate our children uh so yeah quite quite lucky to be able to i guess just to see the that that range no it definitely is and, and thank you so much for for sharing that so that brings us to, to the end of, of your heartbreak of appearances so can i thank you so so much for giving up your time on a friday evening of all so thank you so much and thank uh, you so much for sharing um your knowledge and, and for everything that you do honestly genuinely it's a pleasure because your podcast is one of the very few that I subscribe to. I think it's brilliant what you do. Uh, and I feel like I learn a, a lot when I listen to like you and your guest talk. So yeah, to be on the third time is an absolute pleasure. Right. Thank Definitely. you so much. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from, so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated, and I do hope to see you there.